Second Samuel chapter six. As you're turning to Second Samuel chapter six, for the fifth time, let me begin by asking the same thought-provoking questions I've been setting before us each week regarding the topic of worship. And by now, I'm assuming that most of you have them memorized. Does God care how we worship Him? Is there a right way to worship God? Is there a wrong way to worship God? If so, what are the standards and guidelines for worship? Is God open to any and all expressions of worship? Do we have the freedom to include what we like or what we think is best in worship? Do we have the liberty to decide how we approach God in worship? Are there principles, the practices of worship ought to be funneled through? Are styles of worship a matter of one's preferences or one's denomination? Is one's sincerity the most important element of worship? Is one's feelings the most important element of worship? How about fun and entertainment? Should our methods of worship be determined by someone's personal gratification? And then, who sets the standards for worship? Who says some things are accepted in worship and other things are not? How do we know what is right and what is wrong? And in our quest to find sufficient answers to these questions from the Bible... This evening, I want to consider another occasion in Israel's history in which God's people failed to worship God in the precise way that God had prescribed. And the title I've given the sermon tonight is, When the Sincere Zeal of God's People Takes Priority Over Simple Obedience to God's Word. When the sincere zeal of God's people takes priority over simple obedience to God's word. Or to condense the title down to one brief statement, I suppose I could title it, When Zeal Eclipses Obedience. When Zeal Eclipses Obedience. 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baali of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, that was in Gibeah, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood 
even of harps, and on psalteries, and on timbrels, and on cornets, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased, because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. And he called the name of that place, Perez Uzzah, to this day. Now, lest you think that Uzzah is the only individual who foolishly became overcome by his zeal, I want to begin by showing you that Uzzah's zeal and disobedience was only the aftermath of both David and Israel being overtaken by their overzealous waywardness. In our first point, I want you to carefully notice in verses 1 through 3, David's zeal and disobedience. David's zeal and disobedience. The Bible says that King David, with 30,000 chosen men, went to Baali of Judah with the sole intention that he might bring the ark of God from Baali of Judah to Jerusalem to the capital city of Israel. Now, pausing here just for a moment, let me make sure that we understand several important details about what is taking place. First, let me remind you that the ark mentioned here is the Ark of the Covenant, which God commanded Moses to make more than 400 years before David's time. This Ark was a wood box or chest containing the two tablets of the law that Moses brought down from Sinai, a jar of manna and Aaron's rod. And I think it is safe to say that the most significant thing about the Ark of the Covenant was the top of this box, which was called the mercy seat. Once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies where the Ark was kept and the high priest would atone for his sins and the sins of the Israelites through a blood sacrifice to appease the wrath of God for past sins that were committed. The mercy seat of the ark was a symbolic foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice for all sin, namely, the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for the remission of sin. Just as there was only one place for the atonement of sins in the Old Testament, the mercy seat of the ark of the covenant so there is only one place for atonement, namely the cross that our Lord willingly laid down his life as the propitiation for sin. And then added to this truth about the ark, it's needful for me to remind you that the ark not only foreshadowed Christ's future atonement and thus portrays truths regarding the gospel, the ark of the covenant represented the immediate presence and glory of God in Israel. And while it is true that God is omnipresent, 
meaning that he is everywhere at one time. It is also true that the ark was a symbol of God's presence that was not to be treated casually or lightly. In fact, God required that this ark be carried by certain men in a certain way. God commanded that when and if this ark moves from one place to another, that the sons of Kohath, of the Levitical tribe, are to carry the ark using two wooden poles inserted through rings on its side. God had required in His law, given through Moses, that touching the ark is strictly forbidden. And should someone touch the ark in disobedience to God's law, God promised that they would die. God expected that this box, this ark that depicted the message of the gospel and was the symbol of His holy presence be something that is treated with great dignity and great respect. Now, looking back at our text, we see that King David had a sincere desire to bring the ark out of obscurity, out of the house of Abinadab, and back into prominence, namely Jerusalem. Why? So that the central place of worship might be alive with a sense of the near presence and glory of God. David here in verses 1 and 2 gathered the best of his soldiers together for this task of moving the ark because he believed that bringing the ark to Jerusalem was an important unifying step in encouraging the people to be one under God. And from what we can tell in this passage, I want you to recognize that David's immediate desire is pure and God-honoring. He truly wants, as the king of Israel, for God's presence to be known among the nation. He truly wants the people of God to be united, not merely under His leadership as an earthly king, but under the leadership of the eternal king. And this is all wonderful, except that verse 3 tells us that they... Speaking of David and his men, set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. Do you see the problem? The problem is that David and his men wanted to transport the ark to Jerusalem in a way that was contrary to God's command. God wanted the ark to be carried on poles by the Levites. And someone in this instance eagerly said, Hey, why don't we use a new cart to transport it instead of carrying it? I mean, it would be a lot easier to transport if we put it on a cart. 
Just think of the shoulders of the Levites as they carry it. Surely it must become a burden to them. Do you see what these men are doing? They are being innovative. Do you remember Nadab and Abihu's problem? Their problem was the same problem. They wanted to be innovative. They wanted to do God's work in their own way. David and his men presumed that God would be okay with new cards and new methods that haven't been used before, at least not among the Hebrew people. I find it very interesting that the only other place in Scripture we find the ark being placed on a cart was when the Philistines sent the ark back to Israel on a cart in 1 Samuel chapter 4. But here is David, the king of Israel, commanding his men to join him in bringing the ark back to Jerusalem while failing to remind them of how God wants the ark to be transported. David was zealous, but nonetheless wrong to disregard the clear commands of God. Now, turning now to the second point, I want you to notice Israel's zeal and disobedience. Looking to our text once again, we find that after the ark of God was set upon a new cart, that David and all his house, David and the house of Israel, played before the Lord on all manner of instruments. Now, at first you might read this text and say to yourself, this sounds like a God-glorifying worship service that I would like to be a part of. I mean, here they are happy and excited that the ark is returning to the capital city of Jerusalem. Here they are filled with great joy that they, of all people, get them be among those who witness with their own eyes the ark being esteemed to a place of importance. I mean, surely they were sincere in their worship. Surely they meant well, didn't they? Surely God was pleased with their worship, right? Well, it seems that those worshiping were very sincere in their playing their instruments in, a, in an engaging manner, except that they were doing it all while the ark was before them on a new cart. They were worshiping the Lord in disobedience to His Word. I'm sure their feelings were stirred. But they were not worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Now think about this carefully. Among the thousands upon thousands of people worshiping before the ark. The ark was no small thing. And now we have the ark being placed on a cart. Being pulled by oxen. This would have stuck out. Among the thousands upon thousands of people worshiping before the ark, nobody spoke up and said, Houston, we have a problem. Nobody rent their clothes and said, stop the performance, stop the procession. 
the ark must be transported to Jerusalem as God commands. Not one. Instead, they became enthusiastic about David's idea. They became overcome in their zealous desires. They became lost in the experience. And I'm sure they assumed that, well, God must have told David different than what he originally told Moses. Surely David couldn't be wrong. If David and his men are okay with it, then I guess we should be okay with it. So they went with it. They were, quote, worshiping before the Lord, but not as God prescribed. They were zealous, but not following God's ways. And this leads us then to our third main point, which is Uzzah's zeal and disobedience. In this text, things go from bad to worse. One compromise leads to another compromise, which turns into another compromise, and that's usually how compromise works. One foolish decision leads to another foolish decision, leads to another foolish decision, and before you know it, people find themselves doing all sorts of outrageous things. Verses 6 and 7. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. Do you see Uzzah's zeal? I mean, come on. What's the big deal? Uzzah was trying to keep the ark from falling. It seems that he meant well. I mean, it's not like he committed murder. It's not like Uzzah was bowing down to false images, pagan gods. Why was the anger of the Lord kindled against Uzzah? The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah because Uzzah's actions were contrary to God's revealed law. No matter how, quote, innocently it was done, the fact that he was transporting the ark wrongly and did not obey the Lord's command to refrain from touching the ark showed just how far his heart was from true obedience. And one author says it this way, quote, Because of sin, Uzzah's hands were dirtier than the ground that the ark was in danger of touching. Do you want to know what Uzzah's problem was? Uzzah's problem was, Uzzah felt that it was His responsibility to save the integrity of God. Uzzah felt that God somehow needed Uzzah's assistance. He presumed that without his intervention, God's presence would be dealt a blow. And in this, he was filled with pride. 
He might have been sincere, but the Bible is teaching us that he was sincerely wrong. His zeal led to sin against God. Are you beginning to see the parallels between then and now? Are you beginning to see the same harmonious truths that are being underscored by God in John 4.24, Exodus 32, Leviticus 10, and the opening six verses in 2 Samuel 6? Let's go back to our questions. Does God care how we worship Him? Is God okay with anything and everything we offer Him? Is one's zeal and sincerity the most important element of worship among Christ's church? Well, many people think and passionately say, yes, in fact. The main kickback I hear from these unbiblical, entertainment-driven places of worship that mock Bible doctrine is, God doesn't have a problem with this. God is a God of love. God is a God of acceptance. Therefore, nobody is right and nobody is wrong. Or, everybody is right and nobody is wrong. What do we hear from modern day Christianity? When anyone dares to preach to them Bible truth about their worship, They respond by saying, don't you dare be a legalistic Pharisee and judge another professing Christian style of worship. Don't you dare criticize that woman preacher. Don't you dare frown upon how others are serving the Lord in ministry. They are nice, sincere, well-meaning people. Well, this may be so. But God's main requirement for worship and ministry is not sincerity and niceness, but obedience and holiness. There are a lot of nice, kind people within churches who are doing the wrong thing. There are nice... Sincere people believing the wrong gospel. Belonging to cults. Their sincerity doesn't make them right. Their obedience to truth makes them right. Now having said all this, let me take the truths we've considered from our text and give you five obvious principles and lessons that ought to influence the way we worship and serve the Lord both individually and collectively. Five obvious principles and lessons that we ought to funnel all of our worship practices through. And lesson number one is lesson number one in every session. You know it already. John 4, 24. God is a spirit and they that worship Him must... Worship Him. How? In spirit and in truth. Do you have this truth cemented on your hearts and minds? God expects us to honor and obey His Word. God's work is to be done in God's way if it is to have God's blessing. When God says that His people are to have no other gods before Him... 
he means that they are not to have any other gods before them. When God says that his priests are to minister before the Lord in the tabernacle in a certain way, he means that they ought to minister before the Lord according to the way he prescribes. When God says, if anyone touches the ark will die, he means that anyone who touches the ark will die. God says what he means and he means what he says. God is a spirit and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The repetitive principle that pours out of every illustration from the Old Testament is this one truth. God wants obedience. God expects us to follow His ways. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him. In sincerity, yes. But not in sincerity alone. In sincerity from the heart according to revealed truth. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, if we learn anything from this account given in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we learn the great lesson that the end does not justify the means. The end does not justify the means. Are you familiar with this thing? If you are not, the phrase, the end doesn't justify the means is a moral principle that suggests that the goal or outcome of an action does not excuse methods that are used to achieve it. In other words, the means used to achieve a goal should be as ethical or moral as the goal itself. The end of Nadab and Abihu's coming before the Lord in Leviticus 10 was to worship the Lord. But the way in which they did it was wrong. The end goal of bringing the ark back to Jerusalem was an honorable desire. But the way in which they went about it was dishonoring to the Lord. The end does not justify the means. Let's think about it in the context of church worship and church ministry. We want God's presence to be among us, do we not? Isn't that a pure, sincere Biblical desire? We want people to come to church and hear the truths of God's Word which are able to save their soul. We want people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But we must not turn the church into a circus. We must not water down or change the message of the Gospel or lower our standards to meet such goals. Yet this is precisely what is taking place in many Christian churches today. From manipulating people to walk an aisle, to having people repeat a sinner's prayer, to turning a church into a social club, to winning the world by becoming like the world. So long as people are coming, we say, what does it matter? The church house was full. So I guess God must just be in it. So long as the Word of God is preached, what does it matter? 
If we darken the auditorium and make it as a rock concert, what does it matter if the pastor dresses up like Super Mario? What does it matter if the deacons dress up like Disney characters to greet people as they come in? What does it matter so long as people are coming in and hearing the gospel? What matters is the means to the end in these cases are worldly and not pure. The means to the end in these cases, the cases we've been considering over the weeks, are casual, flippant, and really idiotic. And certainly not in agreement with the means used by the prophets, the apostles, and Jesus himself. Think about it. The prophets, the apostles, and Jesus never used amusing means to attract people to their message. They never once employed worldly gimmicks to allure people to church. What did they do? Here's what they did. They prayed. They preached. They evangelized. And they lived holy. So what do we learn from 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1-8? through We learn that the end result never justifies the means. God cares not only about the end result. God cares about how we go about obtaining that end result. Lesson number three. What do we learn from 2 Samuel chapter 6? But we learn that good intentions do not make up for our blatant disobedience. Good intentions do not make up for our blatant disobedience. Look, David, Israel, and Uzzah had good intentions. But their good intentions did not make up for their blatant disobedience. So let's put this in common day practical Christianity. So a missionary thinks... Well, I need to appear like a successful missionary in my next prayer letter so that I can continue to have the support of American people. So I better hold an evangelistic crusade and I better have so many people in Latin America who are already used to repeating prayers after a priest pray the sinner's prayer after me so I can tell American pastors that hundreds, if not thousands of people, quote, prayed the sinner's prayer and got saved. The end doesn't justify the means. Good intentions do not make up for unbiblical methods of evangelism. And you would be surprised how many missionary letters I see week after week boasting of Hundreds and supposed thousands of people coming to faith in Christ. Well, if that was the case, their cities would be turned upside down. If that was the case, we should see something of the winds of revival. Good intentions do not make up for our blatant disobedience. Let's continue on. So a pastor thinks we desperately need some Sunday school teachers to help out in our Sunday school program. We need some nursery workers to serve in our nursery. We need some musicians to help the worship service become a little bit more lively. Let's hire some unsaved people to watch our children. 
Let's ask the person who's living in fornication to be a part of our children's ministry program. Let's refrain from asking others of their testimony of salvation. Let's refrain from expecting them to be fully committed to Christ. And let's just put people into various positions so that we can just keep the ministries going. I mean, come on, pastor, we want more members, don't we? We need more tithers so that we can raise that $5 million goal for our building program. Stop preaching on sin. Loosen up a little bit. Stop getting involved in people's personal lives. Pastor, let them live how they want to live. I mean, you're never going to have a big church if you, as a pastor, preach the way you do. So just loosen the church membership requirements a little bit. These are real temptations that a pastor faces. But excuse me, good intentions do not make up for blatant disobedience. Good intentions ought not to eclipse simple obedience to God's word. I know of an occasion in which a Baptist preacher in a certain place was preaching the gospel. Somebody made a profession of faith. And because the place that they were in did not have a baptistry, this Baptist preacher, in his zeal, in his foolish zeal, said, well, I suppose we could just pour water on you and call it baptism. We don't have a baptistry, so we did the next best thing. Surely God will accept that. Surely it's biblical baptism. Surely it's pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Or how about this one? Our church is without a pastor and leader and we need someone to lead. So let's just pick someone. Let's just pick anyone. And there's no prayer there's no fasting, there are no interviews, there's no figuring out where potential leaders are in theology. Someone says among the congregation that they want so-and-so to be the pastor or preacher, or someone recommends that the individual with a vibrant personality and willingness to teach be the leader, so someone thrusts themselves into position or somebody thrusts somebody else into the position of leadership. I mean, we don't have any men to choose from, so I guess the next best thing to do is choose a woman. Good intentions don't make up for blatant disobedience. Does God's Word tell us who should be a pastor? Does God's Word give the qualification of gospel ministers? And likewise, from Genesis to Revelation, God's Word highlights the fact that anyone in a position of leadership should be a person of exemplary faith. From the deacons to the deacons' wives to the musicians to the pastors and even those who are constructing the temple. God doesn't throw anyone to specific tasks, but specific godly people to specific tasks. But sometimes in zeal and even sincerity, churches operate in this. We have a position, throw them in the position. And listen, church, call me fanatical, but I hope you've gathered by now 
that God helping me, I'm not going to loosen the standards of church membership and church ministry. If someone does not have a solid testimony of faith, I'm not going to recommend them to church membership. If someone doesn't show evidence of being truly born again of the Spirit, I'm not going to pretend that they belong to Christ. And the same is true with serving in various ministries. If someone has a testimony that is questionable or obviously worldly, we are not going to entertain the thought of putting them over others. If someone is talented in a particular area, but their marriage is a mess, and their home life is out of sorts, they are not going to serve in a ministry position. And the same is true if someone refuses to dwell peaceably with their brothers and sisters in the Lord, or somebody who is theologically flawed. As an overseer of the flock, I'm going to stand before the Lord regarding who I allow to influence others for Christ in the church. We're not going to throw anyone into a ministry position so that we can have an abundance of ministries filled with carnal people. That doesn't do good in the long run. We want spiritual people doing spiritual ministry. God's work is to be done in God's way if it is to have God's blessing. And if we don't have people for a ministry, we're not going to have the ministry. It's really that simple. Why? Because nothing preaches better than the act. Somebody can be in ministry and, quote, serve Jesus by saying Bible truth, but if their life is a mess, they're pulling up with one hand and tearing down with the other. And we've seen instances of this. People involved in ministry... People loving to serve in their favorite positions. They only come when they're serving in their favorite positions. And then they're gone. They're not really among the flock. They really don't have a desire to learn and grow in the Lord. No amount of enthusiasm or good intentions can compensate for disobedience or lack of holiness. Lesson number four is the lesson we've been repeating Each and every week. The way of the world is the way of death. The way of the world is the way of death. Here we are again talking about death. Aaron set up a golden calf for God's people to worship. And death came. Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire to God and they died. David, Israel and Uzzah adopted the practice of the Philistines the practice of the world. They adapted the worship with new methods and Uzzah died because of it. The way of the world is the way of death. So it is in our personal lives and in our collective churches. If you love the world and embrace the world in your personal life, your relationship with God is going to die. As churches embrace the methods of the world, they may look lively, but in reality, spiritually, they are dead. The way of the world brings the grieving and the quenching of the Spirit. The way of the world destroys the pure message of the gospel that the church is to proclaim. The way of the world 
diminishes the light of the gospel that the church is to be to the community. The way of the world brings confusion, contention, and disappointment. The way of the world brings the chastisement of God. The church, like the ark, is to be a holy place where God dwells among His people where the holy gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. It is not to be a sanctified Starbucks. It's not to be a carnival cruise ship. The church of God has so little influence over the world because the world has so much influence over the church. The way of the world is the way of death. Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. Be not conformed to the image of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Come out from among them and be what? Separate. Come out. Don't go in and bring them in. Come out. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We can't bring the world into the church. We can't win the world by becoming like the world. The way of the world is the way of death. Lesson number five. God is the God of mercy. God is the God of mercy. You say, Pastor, we're reading 2 Samuel chapter 6. Are we in the same passage? What do you mean God is the God of mercy? God killed Uzzah in judgment. Yes, but in mercy... God was teaching David and Israel that he is a God who means what he says and says what he means. And I like what one unknown commentator notes on this truth. He says, quote, What should surprise us in the reading of this passage and passages like it is not that the Lord sometimes executes his wrath immediately, but that he does not do so more often. You see, don't let your mind become twisted in coming to a passage like this or going to Leviticus 10 or Exodus 32 and say, wow, the God of the Old Testament sure was a fierce fireball. Boy, he sure is different than the God of the New Testament. No, the God of the Old Testament is a God who delights in mercy. Is God wrong to destroy Uzzah for doing what he did? No. God warned him before. The question is, why didn't God destroy David and Israel along with him? That's the question. Is God wrong to give David another opportunity to take the ark to Jerusalem the right way? No. The question is, why is God so gracious with sinners that He is willing to give them opportunity to reform or change their ways? Do you see how merciful God is? God is merciful to put these warnings in the Bible for our admonition and learning. He didn't have to give us the Scriptures. But over and over and over and over, He gives them to us so that we might know what He expects of us. God is a God who delights, not in judgment, but in mercy. So as I close, let me ask, 
Is there any area in your life where your sincere zeal is eclipsing your simple obedience to God's Word? Is there any known compromise you might be indulging in because you feel that because others are doing it, that God is okay with it? Have you succumbed to the lie that certain practices must be unquestionably honoring to the Lord because the majority of the people who are involved in such practices seem sincere? And have you come to believe that sincerity is not the preeminent element of worship? What is the preeminent element of worship? Obedience to God's Word. If there's one overarching truth within the series of messages that I've been preaching on Sunday nights that I'm hoping you will become completely convinced of, it's this one truth. God's work is to be done in God's way. And God's work is done in God's way when it is in agreement with God's will that is articulated in God's Word. God's work is to be done in God's way and God's work is done in God's way when it is in agreement with God's will that is articulated in God's Word. It doesn't matter what people think. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what people do. What matters is, is God's Word being honored and is God's Son being revered. That's the true test of biblical worship. And then let me ask, are you saved this evening? Do you know the Lord? You say you were sincere when you came to Christ. But the proof of our conversion does not rest in our sincerity. It rests in the truth that God has really converted our soul. It's not about us. And what we feel and what we have done is about what Christ has done for us. Knowing Him in sincerity and in true gospel realities.